All right, welcome to another episode of the Light Bulb Factory, conversation centered on the church becoming the light of the world. This episode is a recording from our college worship gathering. If you are a college student in Waco, we'd love to have you join us any Sunday at 2 p.m. in the sanctuary of First Baptist Church, Waco, where we learn about the way of Jesus together and discern what it looks like to live it out as a community. Today we are starting a new four-week series called The Politics of Jesus. And you say, well, a four-week series, Ryan, the election is Tuesday. It's a little bit late, right? But the timing of this is on purpose, okay? Because this series is not an attempt to influence your vote. Uh, 99% of you already know what you're going to vote for uh, anyway. And there's little that I could really do to sway you. I'm not interested in doing that. Uh, instead, over the next four weeks, even after the election and into the future, what I want to do in this series is help us think about how Christians should think about politics, not just in an election, but, but all the time. And maybe more specifically, how would an upside-down church engage the polit- political sector? And so we're going to focus over the next four weeks on developing a political theology in this series, we're going to, going to talk about several different things. We're going to talk one week about pursuing justice. We're going to talk about what, what is justice and what does it have to do with the gospel. Uh, another week, we're going to talk about seeking the welfare of the city. We're going to talk about the relationship that the, that the church should have with the society around it. We're also going to talk about resisting the empire. We're going to, we're going to ask questions like, is, is America a Christian nation? How do we respond to secularism uh, that's growing in our midst? Uh, But today, I might title this message, Becoming Political Misfits. So, with the election coming up on Tuesday, many people in our world today feel like everything is hanging in the balance. That in our more dramatic moments, we might feel like the world is even coming to an end. And what we're seeing over the past few decades in our country is that politics has turned into the new religion. Now, as you know, uh, our country is less religious than ever in our history. Uh, There are people that are saying more and more that they don't believe in God, but they believe in perhaps nothing. And what's happened is that as religion has declined in America, politics has grown as the new form of religion. Alistair McIntyre, a philosopher, talks about how people are meaning-making machines. And so if they don't have religion in their life to give them meaning, then they have to turn somewhere else to give them meaning instead. And for many people, politics is the new thing that gives them meaning. Decades ago, in the height of religion, politics uh, was, was seen as you know, necessary, but people didn't really care all that much about it except for once every four years. But now as religion has declined, politics has raised up. Now for many, politics is everything. And the reason is that we have to find meaning somewhere in our world. And the problem today is that the church gets too easily swept into this current. That too often politics for us is everything when it doesn't have to be. It's the place where we try to find meaning as well. So today we're going to talk about the politics of Jesus. Now, for some of us, this title may be confusing at first. We may even have the question in our mind, what does Jesus have to do with politics? Well, there's a quote that I I love from Eugene Peterson, who says something provoking. It's going to set up our conversation for today. And, And here is his quote. Peterson says, the gospel of Jesus Christ is more political than anyone imagines, but in a way that no one guesses. 
So that's what we're going to talk about today and in this series. Now, to understand what Peterson is getting at here, we have to go back to the original meaning of the word political. We must go back all the way to the, the Greek philosophers. And so politics, in the very beginning, was understood like this. It was the, the art of arranging the affairs of the community, okay? And so today, our imagination for politics is very, very small, that we think the primary way that we, the only way that we can arrange the affairs of the community is through government and through policy and through legislation. But this is not the only way to arrange the affairs of the community. As we're going to discuss later, you, you can be political without being partisan. That's a little hint of where we're going ahead today. So I want to give you this graph that's going to be kind of a map for us throughout our discussion today. And at the top, you'll, you'll see the note that uh, there are the four Christian political options, okay? The four ways that Christians try to be political in our world today. Now, this is a bit of an oversimplification. It could use some nuance, but it'll do for the purposes of what we're, we're, we're talking about today. Uh, we'll elaborate more as we go on and on, but, but I just want you to look at these options and get familiar with them a little bit. You'll be immediately familiar with the left and with the right, the Democrat and the Republican. There's the, the Christian versions of these, the, the, uh, the Christian left and the religious right that says Christians really ought to hop aboard the train of the Republican Party or the Democratic Republican. That's the party that we ought to ride with. Uh, but there are other, uh, and in these imagination of the left and the right, uh, the thought goes we ought to get the right people in power to implement the right policies. And once we do, then all will be well. But then we have reactions to those. And so the one that points up, okay, is, is a reaction to this left and the right. It's a disgusted reaction that says, ugh, no, politics is the problem, okay? What we need to do is avoid politics. And when Christians take this uh, response, what it usually manifests like is saying, we need to focus just on getting people saved. We need to focus on the spiritual things. Forget about politics. Forget about changing the world. Let's escape just focus on the eternal. Let's go up and away to another world. And what I'm going to suggest today is that none of these, neither the left nor the right nor the up, is the politics of Jesus. Because his hope is not in those things. But instead, Jesus' politic is an on-the-ground presence in the world. That's what the arrow is pointing down for. That Jesus doesn't want to escape the world. No, Jesus wants us to care about this world because he cares about this world and he has a vision for transforming it. But this vision is accomplished not through government as everyone would expect, but through creating an alternative community, an upside down people in the world who live as salt and light, as a tangible experience of his presence. We'll elaborate more as we go on. In the book Scandalous Witness, uh, Lee Camp uh, argues that Christianity is not a religion, if religion means something that you believe in the privacy of your heart, that Christianity is a politic. And what Camp means by that is that Christianity is a, a vision for how to arrange the, fair, the affairs of the community. And so what he's saying here is that Jesus didn't just bring us a message to believe in the privacy of our heart, that Jesus, Jesus gave us a way of life to be lived out in the world, in the public sector. That he told us how to order our relationships, how to handle disagreements, how, how to think about leadership, how to interact with those who are different from us. And none of this should surprise us. This is what we've been reading the past few weeks in the Sermon on the Mount. And so we can rightly say that the Sermon on the Mount is actually Jesus' political manifesto, that Jesus' teaching is 
political. Jesus is teaching people how to order the entirety of their lives. Now, today, our cultural background has made this difficult for us to understand or grasp because the Enlightenment has discipled us all the way back hundreds of years ago into making a distinction even today between our public life and our private life. And what we're taught is that our faith should be limited to our private life. And so if you believe in Jesus, that's great. But when you step into the voting booth, you're an American. And the idea is don't let your private life impact your public life. And so in this framework, you have two responsibilities, two loyalties. First to your country and and second to Jesus. And the way you deal with the tension between those is that your faith is for your private life and your politics are for your public life. Growing up in America, in, in the West, as a product of the Enlightenment, this is the air we breathe. This is how we're taught to think and feel and, 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 and act in the world. Historically, this is called two kingdoms theology. You'll see that on the chart for the up option. Two kingdoms theology began with Martin Luther, to whom we owe much gratitude for lots of great doctrine. But here he really messed things up. Because, for example, um, when, when Christians served in the military, Luther would say, that when they took the lives of their enemies, they could still remain faithful in doing that because in Luther's words, when they killed others, they were doing it not as Christians, but as good soldiers. So for Luther, there was this distinction. In some moments of your life, you're acting as a Christian, and in some moments of your life, you're acting as something else, for example, a soldier. It's two kingdoms, the public and the private, are divided. And depending on what moment of your life you're at, you wear a different hat. The problem is, however, is that Jesus made no distinction between the public and the private life. That he called his disciples to follow him with their whole life. No exception. And so take, for example, uh, Jesus' call in the Sermon on the Mount to radical nonviolence. We talked weeks ago about how Jesus never gives us permission to take the life of another person. That the way of Jesus is not to kill your enemies, but it's, it's actually to forgive them and to love them. Now, think about it. You you can't turn the cheek in the privacy of your heart. This is a teaching from Jesus that is inherently public, that it seeks to shape the affairs of the community. Jesus' call to nonviolence is a political call. Shane Claiborne writes in his book, Jesus for President, about how this political call that Jesus puts in our life creates tension for us as followers of Jesus. Here's what he says. He says, today's logic goes something like this. We can support a president, and by the way, this was written years ago, so don't read into the current context. Uh, We can support a president while also worshiping Jesus as the Son of God. But how is this possible? For one says that we must love our enemies, and the other says we must kill them. One promotes the economics of competition, while the other admonishes the forgiveness of debts. To which do we pledge allegiance? Surely one of them must have the wrong idea of how to move history. Can a servant serve two masters? To say that we must kill our enemies and join the popular project to rid the world of evil is to call Jesus unrealistic. And that is possibly desirable for many. Surely his ideas do not resonate with any common wisdom. But can you call Jesus the son of God and also say he doesn't understand the world today? How ironic is it to see a bumper sticker that says Jesus is the answer next to a bumper sticker supporting the war in Iraq, as if to say, Jesus is the answer, but not in the real world. You see, because Jesus' teaching is political, 
then we should expect it at some point to challenge our politics. If Jesus is Lord, he gets to tell us how to live our whole life, not just the privacy of our heart, but every corner of our life, even our politics. And some might say, and you've probably heard this, well, I'm not electing a commander-in-chief. I'm uh, Sorry, I'm, I'm electing a commander-in-chief. I'm not electing a pastor-in-chief. That language there reveals, once again, two kingdoms theology. It assumes that Jesus is content with reigning in the privacy of our hearts, but he's not. That he's given us a way of life that calls us out into the world and touches every corner of our being. Let's look a little closer together at the passage we read moments ago from Philippians 3. Let me read it again. Paul writes, Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters. And just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again, even with many tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So in this passage right here, Paul tells the church to keep their eye on the ball, that many people around them are living out a different way of life. Look at verse 19 again. Their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But the church, Paul says, is called to live out a different way. We might say an upside down way, right? And the reason, once again, is that our citizenship is in heaven. Is that we belong to another kingdom. Think about it for a minute. Can you imagine Jesus in the first century walking around with a God bless Rome t-shirt? Now let's be clear. Jesus' allegiance was not to Rome. It was first to the kingdom of God. And sure, he obeyed the laws of the land. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God what is God's. Jesus paid taxes. Of course he did. But it was never in doubt who Jesus' loyalty belonged to. That he knew that he was a citizen of heaven. That he belonged to another kingdom. Now, Jesus himself was not a Roman citizen, but Paul, who wrote this passage, actually was. Paul's Roman citizenship gave him status, it gave him rights, and yet even so, he's the one who writes here, sure, I'm a citizen of Rome, but even more importantly, first and foremost, I am a citizen of heaven. So today, I want to talk about how when we go all in on the politics of the left or the politics of the right, then we forget that our citizenship is first in heaven. That when we go all in, our hope is no longer in Jesus. Our hope is in a political party. And we say, well, if we could just get those people in office, if we could just you know, get those people in court, then, then everything's going to be well. well. Let's be honest. If you're depending upon an earthly outcome for all to be well, then that's where your hope is. And Jesus has been demoted probably to the private life. So let's dig into this graph a little bit more together here. I want to talk about the left and the right a little bit and how maybe there's another way forward for us. Uh, now, the, the religious right has tended to lift up a, a few certain platforms as being uh, very important for Christians. Uh, and so the, the lines typically go that Christians have a responsibility um, to, uh, to care for the unborn, for religious freedom, uh, to lift up Jesus' sexual ethic, 
Uh, and then the left on the other side says Christians usually have a responsibility to, um, to, pr- to pursue social justice, to, to care for the environment, uh, to care for the poor. And so Christians on both sides lifting up platforms that they think the Bible leads us to and that faithful Christians ought to believe and pursue. What do we do? Which way do we pursue? Which, what's faithful? Does Jesus want, to vote, want us to vote left? Does Jesus want us to vote right? Well, today I want to talk about how there's a different way forward. And I want to talk about how this left and right trap that we get caught into actually leaves us paralyzed from seeing that way forward. Um, And so here's what I would say, first of all, is that the reason that left and right won't do the trick is, first of all, both left and right require compromise. What I mean to say is they require us to compromise our values, okay? So some of what the Republican Party stands for is biblical, and some of what it stands for is not. Some of what the Democratic Democratic Party stands for is biblical. Some of what it stands for is not. And we shouldn't have to choose you know, ideally, between caring for the unborn and caring for the poor. We shouldn't have to choose between social justice and religious freedom. We shouldn't have to choose between sexuality and between the environment. And yet, we're only given a limited scope of options right in front of us. And we can argue all we want about which party is more Christian. I promise you that debate will go on and on, and there will not be a consensus. People will land on either side. But at the end of the day, it doesn't even matter because the point here is that put it a different way, every political party requires compromise, both left and both right, always 100% of the time. Now, that doesn't mean that you shouldn't vote for one or the other. You've got to figure that out for yourself. But what it does mean is that you should never find yourself saying, all faithful Christians must vote for fill-in-the-blank. Now, why would we have to vote for that person? That would require me to compromise. How can you possibly say that I must do that when to do so would be a compromise? So let me be as clear as possible today. Being a follower of Jesus does not obligate you to vote Republican. Being a follower of Jesus does not obligate you to vote Democrat. Both need to be said. Both are equally true in our world today. And so... Left and right both require us to compromise in some way. And and here's the second thing is that left and right won't do the trick because number two, when the church aligns with a party, its witness is wounded. You see, if any party is lifted up as the, the Christian party, then that party better look like Jesus from the top to the bottom, okay? The policies better match the kingdom of God, and I mean every single last one of them. The leaders better reflect the character of Jesus and ensure no one's perfect, but they ought to remind the world of what Jesus was like. And of course, this is not realistic. This is just not possible. That every political party is going to require us to compromise. And so inevitably, people are going to, if there's a Christian party, the people are going to look at the, quote, Christian party and say, look, if that's what the church is about, I'm good. I'm out. I want nothing to do with it. And so, church, let me ask you the question. Do do we want to leave our reputation in the hands of a political party, of any political party. I sure don't. I hope you don't either. And if that's the reality, then we ought to stop trying to identify what is the Christian party, because the second the church aligns itself with a party, then its witness is sure to be wounded. Number three reason that left and right won't do the trick is that policy 
um, changes don't equal heart changes. So when a policy is changed, it can feel like a tremendous victory. But beating the other side doesn't always mean convincing the other side. Isaac Newton taught us this, right? For every reaction, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And we see this all the time in our world today. A new side wins the election and they undo as much as they can of what the the previous administration has done, right? The policy had been changed, but the hearts, there was no movement there. Just a battle of power back and forth and back and forth. Policies can get shot down. Courts can get packed. Even the most significant victories can have an expiration date. Policy changes can do some good, but what they don't do is change hearts. And in a few minutes, we're going to talk about how something else can change hearts instead. Uh, Number four reason that left and right won't do the trick is that uh, the Bible prescribes causes to us, uh, but not methods. So Tim Keller has a quote that I think is really helpful here, and I want to share this with you. Uh, Here's what he writes. He says, Christians have a freedom of conscience in politics. The Bible binds my conscience to care for the poor, but it does not tell me the best practical way to do it. Any particular strategy, whether it's high taxes in government services or whether it's low taxes in private charity, may be good and wise and may even be somewhat inferred from other things the Bible teaches, but they are not directly commanded. And therefore, we cannot insist that all Christians, as a matter of conscience, follow one or the other. The Bible binds my conscience to love the immigrant, but it doesn't tell me how many legal immigrants to admit to the U.S. every year. It does not exactly prescribe immigration policy. The current political parties offer a potpourri of different positions on these and many other topics, most of which, as just noted, the Bible does not speak to directly. And this means when it comes to taking political positions, voting, determining alliances, and political involvement, the Christian has liberty of conscience. Christians cannot say to other Christians, no Christian can vote for, dot, 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 or every Christian must vote for, unless you can find a biblical command to that effect. So Keller is reminding us that the Bible is political, first of all. It wants us to care for the poor, to love the immigrant, to care for the unborn. That's political. But it's not just a private religion, but nowhere does it tell us how to do those things. It prescribes for us what we ought to care about, but it doesn't tell us how we ought to care about it. And so how, if that's reality, can we possibly say that there is a Christian party? Well, as the left and the right sort of war for power to get in charge, to take things down the way that they want to be done, what's interesting is that Jesus didn't even seem to want power. In Philippians 2, we're told how Jesus lived like this, that being in the very nature of God, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking on the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, while the rest of us try to climb the ladder, Jesus seemed to be climbing the ladder down. So that raises the question for us, what if, what if there was another way to change the world? What if there was another way that didn't require us being in power? I mean, think about it. Jesus changed the world without being in power probably more than any other person in human history. So so why couldn't we change the world without power too? What if we didn't need the left and the right? What what if there was a better way? And I'm not talking about the Green Party, the Libertarians, or an independent candidate. What if there was a better way altogether to change the world that didn't even require government at all? 
What I've given so far is a rejection of the right and the left. But let's turn our attention now to the up and the down. You know, some would agree with my conclusion about left and right today and say, well, you know, this is the up position. We, the church just needs to stay out of politics. And I, I, I kind of agree and I, I kind of not. It depends on what you mean by politics. That if you mean the partisan politics of the left and the right, I'm wholeheartedly with you. But here's the thing, is that Jesus shows us how to be political without being partisan. That's what I want to focus on the rest of our time. Jesus shows us how to be political without being partisan. Jesus is more political than we ever imagined, but in a way that no one guesses. See, Jesus shows us a way to care about the poor, to love the immigrant, to fight for the unborn. It doesn't require us to, sh- to, to fight for control of the government. And it's not that complicated, really. We just do it. That we don't delegate the responsibility to somebody else by voting for them. That we don't delegate. We actually are involved on the ground in an alternative community called the church that cares for the actual poor, the actual immigrants, that cares for the unborn who are right among us. And when we do that, we are being political in the classic sense of the word. And so this is why that up option is just not going to do. Up is the option of escapism, that we opt out of caring about the world, uh, matters of the world completely. The, the thought goes, if we're going to leave this world anyway eventually, then why does it even matter? But the problem is that God cares not just about your soul and not just about your spiritual life, but he cares about this world, all right? To say that, that Jesus is just the private life and, and then the politics is the rest, that's two kingdoms theology. My faith and my vote have nothing to do with one another. Save souls for heaven, take as many as we can go with us, and just let the politics go and burn. But instead... Uh, Jesus calls us to be on the ground, to be making a difference in the world, to be involved in the pain and the hurt of the world. So this, this up position is what I grew up with. It was the mentality that I, that I grew up with. Was, was who cares about politics? Just forget it. I don't care. I'm just going just gonna to pray, just going to worship, just focus on God, and I'll leave this earth one day, and I'll leave it all behind. But yet, that's actually not what Jesus had imagined for us. Because as we said, Jesus shows us how to be political without being partisan. But the big question is how? What are the politics of Jesus? Well, recently I was talking with, with Mary, and uh, we were at Service Thursday, and uh, they every, every week we drive around, uh, the Thursday, Service Thursday group does, and they deliver food to people in our neighborhood who have a lot of needs. And so recently I drove with Mary on her route. She kind of goes the same way every week, sees the same people uh, and everything, and she go, we got up to this one house. We we're going to drop off food and supplies at the front door. And Mary said, man, this is my favorite house right here. And I said, uh, I said Mary, why, why is this your favorite house? And tell me about it. And she said, well, there's this little girl that lives there. And she's, she's real young, you know, six, seven years old. And she has two, two men that live with her in the house. That's it. You know, uh, somebody that could be her father's age. We don't think he is the father, but he's about that age. And then somebody who's like her grandfather. And, and she says, uh, you know, the fact that this, this little girl has no uh, mother figure in her life is just, it's just hard for me. It's, it's hard to see. And, uh, and when, I, you know, when I get to go for a few minutes and talk with this little girl, I feel like I get to be, uh, just even for a little bit, um, a mother figure and a female uh, mentor in her life. And that's, that's really cool, even powerful, even in those few minutes. And this girl had a birthday or, or something came up. Mary wanted to get her a gift. That's what it was. And she said, uh, she said, I think I'm going to, you know, uh, get her this book that I read as a child. Uh, my parents would always read it to me. It was really special. I think I'm going to go give it to this girl as a gift. And maybe when she goes to bed at night, her, her, uh, 
these male figures in her life can read it to her. So what Mary was realizing here in this moment is that there is no policy you could pass that would put a mother figure in this girl's life. There's nothing the government can do to give this girl a mother. That if this girl is going to grow up with a mother figure in her life, it's going to take embodied personal engagement. It's going to take showing up at her doorstep. And so when Mary says, I want to show up and be just a little sliver of a a female mentor in her life, I want to give her a book, you know, that, that might shape her future, then Mary is being political in the classic definition of the word. Because the politics of Jesus look like caring for the things that Jesus cared about and doing the things that Jesus did. Not just voting for them or blogging about them, but actually living them out in a community on the ground. Here's what Claiborne says. He says, we must become the change that we want in the world, not just lobby politicians to change things for us. It means that we must take the responsibility that our political views demand of us. So Claiborne goes on to talk about sort of a classic issue of the right and a classic issue of the left. So he starts talking about abortion and he says, hey, if you're passionate about ending abortion, that's great. That's wonderful. Uh, But wearing a t-shirt and posting posting on it about Facebook is only going to do so much, okay? Instead, what if the church supported pregnant women so well that no woman in their community had to think about having an abortion? What if the church adopted so many children and fostered so many kids that a woman knew that if she had this baby, then the church would take care of it? And so she didn't have to think about anything else. That would be the church being political, but in a whole new way. The same applies to another cause on the left as well. Think about climate change. Perhaps you're passionate about uh, global warming. Now, you can hold up signs all day. You can post on Facebook, and that's only going to do so much good. But what if the church made better decisions about sustainability? What if the church thought intentionally about what it meant to to stop being wasteful with the things that, that have been given to us in our life? Claiborne says this, he says, addressing our needs versus our wants and making sacrificial choices to buy less or differently is not something the state can do for us, that we might hope to change the world through better, bigger programs to stop global warming, but global warming will not end unless people become less greedy and less wasteful, gaining a fresh vision of what it means to love our global neighbor. And so, go back to this quote again from from Claiborne. It's that we must become the change that we want in the world, not just lobby politicians to change things for us. And when we do, when we pursue the politics of Jesus, then odds are sometimes we will look like Republicans, fighting for the unborn and religious freedom, staying faithful to Jesus' sexual ethic. Other times we will look like Democrats, caring for the environment and for the poor and working for justice in the world. And the world will look at us and they will be confused because we won't fit into their categories. They'll say, what are you? I see you marching for the oppressed and for the sanctity of life. I see you taking care of children without parents and taking care of the environment. I have no categories for you. Are you a Democrat or are you a Republican? And we will reply back, I am a Christian. I follow the way of Jesus. You see, following Jesus will make you a political misfit. That you'll look at the options that are available to you and you'll say, I don't like any of them. They all require compromise. And so how you'll decide to, to vote, I, I, I don't know. And it almost doesn't matter because your hope will not be in an election. That your hope will be in something different altogether. Your hope will be in the politics of Jesus. In his radical upside down plan 
to create an alternative community that embodies the reign of God as a, a reminder of who we're recreated to be and a preview of what the world will soon be once again. It's a community of salt and of light who embraces the church being weird and resists being relevant. The politics of Jesus will be enough for us. Now, it may be evident to you that changing the world this way is a slow and a patient process. Most of us don't have the patience to change the world on the ground, person by person, heart by heart. And yet, David Brooks has a quote that I think is helpful in this regard. He says this, Culture changes when a small group of people, often on the margins of society, find a better way to live, and other people begin to copy them. As Jesse said, dots become bubbles. Bubbles grow and grow and draw people in more and more and more. Jesus told a parable about this. He said, the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The mustard seed is the smallest of any seeds, but yet over time it grows and it grows until it becomes a gigantic plant. And so if we look at the politics of Jesus and we say, this doesn't sound realistic. That's not an easy and most you know, efficient way to change the world. You're right, it's not efficient, but it may be the most faithful way to change the world. And it will be a slow and a patient work to win an election and to force people to do things your way is much faster but we should question in the long run if that's really more effective. Uh, imagine what would happen if the world saw the church as what it was meant to be, caring for the things that Jesus cared about without compromise. Uh, imagine prioritizing the witness of the church above all else. Because think about how, Jesus, how people might be drawn to Jesus and want to live out his way if they saw this church in action. It may seem slow at first, but it would have integrity, and isn't that better? Claiborne says this, he says, uh, the kingdom starts small and then permeates and transforms the larger world. This is the heart of Jesus's political imagination. So what do we do about an election on Tuesday? Well, I don't have the answer. Uh, and trust me, I have opinions, we, most of us do, but those aren't important right now. They're not binding on anyone in their conscience. So what I'll say is that I'm less interested in the vote you put down on Tuesday. I'm more interested in the location of your hope. And so here's what we should land on today is that our hope is not in an election, but our hope is in the politics of Jesus and in the person of Jesus. And so Tuesday, and for however long it takes to count the ballots, much of our country is going to feel like the world is hanging in the balance, but not you and I, because our hope is not in any result. And so that means that the church of Jesus should be neither overly excited nor overly exhausted by any outcome, that our hope is in a different place, our citizenship is in heaven.